All right, well, this morning we want to continue in our study of the Gospel of John. We're going to be at the tail end of the fifth chapter of John, verses 31 through 47. And if you want to turn there with me in your Bibles, uh, we're going to be there in John chapter 5, verses 31 through 47. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Jesus said, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. By that, he doesn't mean, by the way, that what he says about himself, because he says it isn't accurate, he's saying that this is a legal statement he's making, which legally, under the Jewish system of law, it was inadmissible for you to provide testimony about yourself. That's what he's saying here when he says it's not true. He then continues, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice, rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? We'll stop right there. Let me just pray again. Dear Heavenly Father, as we open your word now, well, having just read your word, I pray, Lord, that I would... You would, by the Holy Spirit, help me to do a good job of uh, explaining it, teaching it, helping us to understand what this means and applying it to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In this passage that we're spending time in this morning, Jesus highlights one of the greatest barriers to belief in human beings. At the very center of what Jesus has to say in these verses is the issue of salvation. In verse 34, Jesus informs the men he is addressing, who are most likely Pharisees, members of the Jewish religious authority, that the reason he's telling them these things is so that they may be saved. And he goes on in nearly every sentence to make the case that salvation is found in him alone. He states this most, most pointedly in verse 40 when he tells them, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. However, he doesn't stop there by simply making the observation that they refuse to come to him. 
he goes on to make clear what it is precisely that keeps them from coming to him in faith. What is it that competes with Jesus for mastery over their hearts and minds? In verse 44, Jesus poses the question. It's kind of a rhetorical question. He's not actually looking for an answer. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This, again, is a rhetorical question, and so I think we can feel free to reword it in the form of a statement. And if we did that, it would say something like this. Jesus would say, you cannot believe in me, Jesus, when you love the glory of man more than the glory of God. This is the barrier to belief that they have in their hearts. We'll come back to that idea in a minute, because I think that is the main point of what this block of Scripture is teaching. But let me first back up a bit and explore the flow of Jesus' reasoning in this passage. He begins by addressing a legal question. As I already pointed out, under the Jewish system of law, a man's testimony about himself was inadmissible in court. You needed the testimony of others to authenticate or verify your claims. So Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So he's saying in this court of public opinion to these skeptics, he's saying, if I told you who I was, you wouldn't believe me, and under your system of law, that's inadmissible, but I have a witness whose opinion is unimpeachable. I know it's true. However, there's a problem here because the claims that need to be verified and authenticated are nothing less than that Jesus is God. Remember, this is the issue at stake. Remember, the reason why they want to kill Jesus, if we went back to our study from last week, is because he was claiming to be equal with God. And so now what he's saying is, I have a witness who can tell you that it's true. Now that's problematic because the sorts of cases that would have been heard under Jewish law might have been an inheritance. I am his son. Well, you can't say that about yourself. You need a witness to come and verify that. So you can call mom or dad or a brother or something and they can say, yeah, yeah, it's true. That's who he is. Who's going to step forward to say, yeah, he's God. <laughs> who can do that? This is the problem. Who can say that, yes, Jesus is equal to God the Father in divine essence, power, authority, righteousness. He's the holy of holy. He's the creator of the world. Who can say that? Who can vouch for him? Certainly not somebody from the ranks of humanity. Right? No man, no woman, no human being can be a supporting witness to such claims. And by the way, if man was necessary to authenticate and establish Jesus' claims to divinity, that would put the man over Jesus as someone more foundational and more penultimate. As if to illustrate how absurd it would be for a human to provide the bona fides for the Creator, Jesus points to the human being who arguably 
held the most unimpeachable reputation and moral weight of that generation, John the Baptist. He pointed out that when they sent a delegation to John to ask who he claimed to be, we studied that way back in John chapter 1, you might remember, John the Baptist had testified truthfully not only about who he was, and even more importantly, who he was not, but he had also pointed them to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. However, no sooner does Jesus invoke John the Baptist than he dismisses him as a suitable witness who could authenticate his claims. Verses 34 and 36, he says, "...not that the testimony that I receive is from man." But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. It has to be because of the nature of the case that's being prosecuted here. Well, who is greater than John the Baptist? What better witness can be found? We remember in Luke 7, 28, Jesus said, Among those born of women, none was greater than John the Baptist. He's the very highest summit of humanity. And Jesus says, I have somebody better than human humanity to vouch for me. Well, of course, the witness whose testimony regarding Jesus was higher than John the Baptist, and in fact, so much higher, that it is absolutely unassailable and fully, completely authoritative, was that of God the Father himself. Only God could authenticate Jesus' claims to being equal with God. God is self-authenticating. Even when we witness, when we bear witness to Jesus today, what do we point people to? I hope it's not our opinions or our experience or our feelings. Those things are not authoritative. We can't bear witness about ourselves either. We point people to the Word of God. The word of God has weight. Jesus loves you, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. That is a rich theological truth. That's a far surer foundation on which to rest our knowledge that God loves us than our warm fuzzies, which go up and down and are all around. We're fickle, we're unstable, but God's word is immutably true. It's it's unmovable. So, even the Bible has a self-authenticating weight as the Word of God. People say things like, how can we know the Bible is true? And it's a great question. It's a good question to explore and think about. But I think the best answer, the ultimate answer, has to be that the Holy Spirit confirms it as authentic in the hearts of believers. The Bible cannot appeal to another source as being more final and more penultimate in its authority. After all, whose word on a matter is higher and more authoritative than God's? And when God speaks as he has in the word of God, we can't say then, well, Josh Tate, is that true? (laughs) You know, either, either he's the final word or there's somebody higher than him. So, of course, who can Jesus call upon to back him up and authenticate his claims? Well, Only God the Father would fit that bill. And he does that in a few different ways that Jesus points out. The first is miraculous signs. Uh, Last last fall, we spent about eight weeks studying the eight miraculous signs in the book of John. And here Jesus says this, 
For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Those eight miraculous signs in the book of John not only authenticate Jesus' claims as the Son of God and the Messiah, but they also point us to significant truths about who Jesus is and why he came. Of course, there were many more than eight miracles that Jesus worked during the span of his earthly ministry. But John highlights eight of them as being kind of representative of his entire body of work. And he highlights them as vivid illustrations of the things that Jesus said about himself. For example, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, he makes a great I am statement. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, when he fed the, fed the 5,000, he followed that up by saying, I'm the bread of heaven. In all of his works that he did, he was vividly illustrating who he was and doing these works to authenticate the veracity of his claims. Nobody but God could do the things that he did. Who else could restore life to a man who was already beginning to stink in the grave? Who else? Of course, these things were done to authenticate and verify Jesus' claims that he was equal to God, that he was divine, that he was God in the flesh. So he changes water into wine. He heals the official son. There's the healing at the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000. He walks on water. There's the healing of a blind man, raises Lazarus from the dead and the miraculous catch of fish. And we know after the first sign that he did, the changing of the water into wine, we read this. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the miracle of turning water into wine, all of these miraculous signs, had the result of revealing the glory of Jesus. That is to say, put on vivid display, visual display, his excellence his satisfying goodness. All of who he is is made visible through what he did, and it had the effect of bringing about belief in the disciples. In other words, they see these miraculous signs, and they say, wow, what he's saying about himself is true. And that's exactly the first way that God the Father backs up Jesus' claims. He testifies for him. Because remember, last week we talked about how Jesus laid aside the independent use of his attributes— in becoming a man. God who existed before coming, Jesus' coming into the world at Bethlehem is not the birth of a new person. It's the coming into the world of an infinitely old person. But when coming to the world in the way that he did, Jesus laid aside the independent use of his divine attributes. So as God, he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. But he laid that aside, and he became located in a manger in Bethlehem. All of that great omnipresence, oceans contained in a thimble. This is what basically happened. And all of his great omnipresent, om omniscience, his great all-knowing nature, the developing mind of a human infant, such incredible humility in this moment of the incarnation. Unbelievable. And so when we talk about um, him laying aside the independent use of his attributes, what we're saying there is that God the Father 
is giving him the ability to do these things. He doesn't count equality with God as something to be grasped, Philippians 2, which means he won't lay hold of it, but God is giving it, granting it to him. He's a perfect conduit of the Father's movement in him. And so by this, God the Father testifies and authenticates who he is. So in other words, this sign and the others that Jesus did through the power granted him by the Father had the effect of powerfully authenticating Jesus' claims, and others came to believe in him because they witnessed these signs. That's one of the great purposes of the signs. Which, by the way, uh, this whole conversation that we're having is fascinating in light of our culture today. Our culture today is obsessed with identity. (laughs) Who are you is the great loaded question in our culture today. And there is a great debate going on among Americans today as our worldview is shifting away from Christian worldview to a humanistic worldview. Who defines who you are? This is a fascinating intersection in thought in American culture today. Of course, the humanist worldview would put out there that truth is personally derived and personally held. You look within to determine who you are, and you alone can, ide- can define who you are according to your identity. And we see this playing out in the news and in our culture and in pop culture. But isn't it interesting that Jesus defines himself how? Who are you? Let's talk to God the Father about who I am. He doesn't look within. He defines himself externally. He's going to point them to the Bible. He's going to point them to God the Father as the defining thing for who he is. When they came to John the Baptist and they said, who do you say that you are? How did he answer that question? He quoted the Bible. And I think today, rather than looking to the Creator or looking to the Word of God to define our identity, we're looking within, and we're drawing water from a poisoned well. It's no good, and we're seeing it, uh, it's just, it's chaos. (laughs) It's catastrophic, and people are living in the midst of profound error. But this is very interesting, and I, that's, I didn't even have that in my sermon notes, guys. That was a free one. <laughs> and that's a rabbit trail where there's no end. Let's get back to this. Okay. Moving on from the miraculous signs, which is the first one that Jesus mentions, which is true. I mean, I don't know what I would have said to Jesus if he said, well, if you don't think I'm God, explain to me how I did this. How do you raise a dead man from the grave? How do you heal an official son at a distance of miles away or turn water into wine. I don't know how you do that. It's difficult. I don't know how I would have answered him. It does seem like a pretty unassailable bit of testimony. And then Jesus claims that the Father has borne witness directly on his behalf. Verse 37, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. This is probably a reference, although Jesus doesn't make it explicit. This is probably a reference to the occasion of when Jesus was baptized. In Matthew 3, it says this, And behold, this is after he comes up out of the water. Remember, he goes down to the Jordan River. John the Baptist dunks him. And when he comes up out of the water, a voice from heaven pronounces, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So there, God the Father audibly 
testifies, bears witness to the fact that Jesus is his son. That's probably what Jesus is referencing here. And then he wraps up his case with the third witness, or really the third way that God, the singular witness, testifies about him by pointing to the word of God, the scriptures. Verses 37 through 40, he says this, His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then in verse 46, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Uh, No one could fault these Jewish religious leaders for their meticulous study of the scriptures. The scribes, whose job it was to copy the scrolls, they subjected the pages of the Bible to the closest scrutiny possible. They gave attention to every syllable. They copied the Bible loads of times, and they did it by hand, letter by letter, carefully. They even counted words and letters so that they knew which came in the middle of the page and how many of each a given page should have. And we can be very thankful for this care in one sense because the accuracy of the Old Testaments contained in our modern Bibles is a result of very careful attention to detail over the, over the ages. Nevertheless, in most cases, it would seem the reaction of the scribe to the word of God seems to have stopped with the copying. And when they searched the scriptures, they viewed them through the broken prism of their own sinful desires. And so they missed the Bible's central message. The words were accurate. But the fullest meaning of the words was not apprehended by them. In fact, worse than that, their meaning was twisted beyond all recognition and used to justify a system of religion that in its effect exalted man, not God, and which sought salvation in a rigid, man-centric ability to keep laws rather than the gracious sacrifice of a savior. And I fear that many churchgoers today possess a high degree of Bible knowledge that may not translate into Bible-shaped living. They can name the four Gospels. They can name apostles and Old Testament kings. They can name the cities that Paul visited as a missionary. They know some doctrines, and they know who Peter was. But knowing the Bible is not the same as living in relationship with the Bible's author. I fear it is possible to be familiar with the concept of sin and what sin is, but to be unconcerned about sin in my own life. It's possible to possess knowledge of the biblical doctrine of justification, but feel no urgency to be justified to God personally. We can know all about the Christian life while living our lives however we want. What is the value of words and doctrines if they are not inscribed on an obedient heart? 
We should not be impressed, I don't think, by a person with a PhD in theology who holds no special passion for following Jesus' example and how they actually live. Jesus says that those who love him are the ones who obey his commands, not the ones who have them memorized or who have written books about them. These men that Jesus was addressing could quote the Bible frontwards and backwards. In fact, to have attained to their level in the Jewish religious authority system, they probably had huge portions of the Bible committed to memory. They were experts in the law, but somehow they were missing its central meaning. There are 11 separate instances in our Bible where Jesus begins an explanation to the Pharisees by saying, have you not read, or is it not written? Testimony to the fact that they knew the words, but not the meaning. Obviously, they were familiar with the text, but not their meaning. Do you remember how Jesus said to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Now, it's easy from us on our perch, having the whole canon of the Bible, to look down on these men with some scorn. (laughs) And I'm, I'm always a little bit afraid that when I talk about the Pharisees in the Bible, I've created this one dimensional, easy target to talk about. But these were real human beings. They possessed all the complexity and nuance of you and I. And in fact, they probably had a much greater knowledge of the Word of God. And if they were here today, maybe I'd talk in a different way about them. But the thing I want us to see about these Pharisees is they're not dumb. And they're not different than us, really. They're not. But they're missing it. What has blinded these smart, well-educated, Bible-knowledgeable men? What has blinded them to what seems so blindingly obvious to us? How are they missing it? How does this happen? Jesus answers with the rhetorical question, how can you believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. This is Jesus' explanation for why these guys who knew that it was said, who knew that it was written, still miss the meaning. It seems that, according to Jesus, that the Pharisees were blinded to the scriptures and to Jesus by their desire for human praise. They loved the glory of man more than the glory of God. And this was a very provocative thing to say to these leaders who had their heads crammed full of the words of God. He says to them, God's voice you have never heard. These guys who claimed to be God's mouthpiece, who had packed their minds full of the words of God, Jesus says to them, you've never heard him at all. Never heard. In spite of all their reading of God's word, all their memorization, the filter through which they had received God's words was so distorted and broken and wrong that it was as if they had heard nothing at all. They'd never truly heard the voice of God. As Jesus would say about them, they had eyes but didn't see, and they had ears but didn't hear. 
The result is, according to verse 38, you do not have God's word abiding in you. And the evidence for that is you do not believe the one whom he has sent. And here we get to the root of the issue. Verse 42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. But how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And again, we come back to that rhetorical question. They seek the glory of man, not of God, and therefore they can't believe. And why is it that someone who loves the glory of man more than the glory of God cannot, cannot believe in Jesus? This is because the gospel destroys all human pretense. The gospel destroys any notion of human superiority and attainment. Why am I saved? Because I'm good? Because I'm smart? Because I'm wise? No. None of these things can be said is true. I'm saved because God's merciful and gracious. I had nothing to offer but deep, profound need. I had nothing to bring God. I had no resume of works that I could present and say, see, I deserve entry. I can't point to my lineage as though that's good. I have nothing to offer, but I'm saved. Christians are not good people, not by nature. <laughs> Christians are not unusually wise or particularly amazing. I don't have anything to brag about. I join with Paul when he says in Galatians 6:14, "May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ." That's the only thing I have to stand on. But for these men who loved the glory of man more than the glory of God, there is nothing so repugnant as the gospel. The gospel says, well, you have nothing to brag about. You, you have nothing to say, look at me about. None of that is any good to you anymore because Jesus did it all. Fellow Christian, what's the basis of your hope? If it's not the finished work of Jesus on the cross, you're not a Christian. You might be a Christian lookalike, but you're not a Christian yet. If your hope is in Jesus plus something else, you're not quite there yet. Is the sum total of your hope before God the Father that Jesus took your place on the cross, that all your sins were put on him, and in exchange he gave you the perfect robes of his righteousness? And now you can join with Paul in saying, I've got nothing to brag about except that cross. That is the basis of my hope. Full stop. That's it. This is why they cannot believe in Jesus because they love to be glorified. They love self-exaltation. They love people to look at them and say, now that's 
a righteous man. That's a man who God has to let in <laughs> because of he's done all the do's and he's not done all the don'ts. He has put, made God his, in debt to him. This is the, basically the philosophy of these men boils down to this. I have lived in such a way, God, that you owe me. And it betrays the fact that they don't really want God. They want something from him. And maybe if they could get it from somewhere else, they would. This is transactional to them. This isn't a relationship. This is, I've done all the do's, I haven't done all the don'ts, and you owe me. (laughs) This is is their religion. And it's all about glorifying them. They're their own savior. We talked about this in the garden. The sin that Adam and Eve committed was believing it would be better to be God than to continue trusting in God. And these guys are living in the midst of the same lie, thinking it would be better if we could save ourselves through law-keeping than to trust in a perfectly righteous Savior. It's the same sin Adam and Eve committed. It's just another iteration of the same error. Playing out again and again and again, generationally, and to these people, Jesus says, you would not come to me that you could know life. Because you are intent on trying to save yourselves. You think it would be better to be your own Savior than to trust in one. This is why it takes a great deal of humility to be a Christian. The truth that Jesus saves us not because we're good, but despite the fact we're evil, how he invites us to trust in him who justifies the ungodly and to rest in his finished work rather than trying to earn heaven, all of this is deeply repugnant to somebody who loves their own glory. All of this, which is foundational to the Christian hope, destroys and undermines our fallen impulse to pridefully self-exalt. In Matthew 23, 5 through 7, we read this about the Pharisees. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. This is, what they, this is their reward. This is what they want. And isn't it fascinating that Jesus said, if another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. Why would that be so? Why would it be so that they would love somebody who stood up and said, I'm somebody? <laughs> Why would they follow such a one? Because that kind of Messiah would be their kind of person. It would give them license to be like their leader. He would confirm their love affair with self-exaltation as right and good. And Jesus confronts that and they hate him for it. But Jesus loves the Father. He delights in the Father being glorified in him above all things. And this is not who the Pharisees want to be. Within their own narrative, they are the main character. They are the sun around which many other lesser figures orbit. They love their own glory. They love the story of their extraordinary goodness, their remarkable grit, resolve, their work ethic, their ability to be better than others who have made bad decisions. They love this so much that when they encounter proof to the contrary in God's word, 
or directly from the mouth of Jesus, they just sweep it aside as not fitting the narrative. This is why they read the Bible, but they don't see its meaning. It's because it confronts what they love. You see, the problem with the Pharisees is not that they have feeble minds, but they have two strong desires. They're governed by their passions, and their passions run contrary to what they've been called to. They're full of disordered desires and misshapen longings that blind them to the truth. What we know matters, but not even half so much as what we love. Now that's a true statement. Verse 45 says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Moses is the one who wrote the law. And their whole belief is that they were going to be justified to God the Father through their law-keeping, through their ability to do God's commands. And something we need to see here is this. Jesus said, in the end, all those laws will just be accusations. Legalists, like the Pharisees, they take the sword of the Spirit, which we're told in Ephesians six seventeen is the Word of God. These legalists take the sword of the Spirit and they fall on it in suicide. It's an old analogy, perhaps even to the point that it's trite, but I love it so much, you just have to trot it out every once in a while. When you come in from work, you've been working out in the yard or digging a ditch or something, you come into the house and there's a mirror there, you look at the mirror and it tells you what? You're disgusting, (laughs) you're dirty. You've got stuff in your hair. You've got dirt coming down the side of your face. Your clothes are a mess. The mirror tells you your true state. But what can the mirror not do? It can't clean you. If you take that mirror and try and clean yourself with it, all you're going to do is get the mirror dirty, which is what they've done. Right? They've twisted and contorted the word of God, which was given to them by God to show them their true state. Do you know why all the do's and the do-nots exist for us fallen creatures? Because when I come to them and I see all the things I should have done but I didn't, and I see all the things I shouldn't have done but I definitely did, it's like a mirror that says, well, that's your true state. You're a sinner. You're dirty. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But just like the mirror can't clean you, neither can the Bible. This is what the legalists, these Pharisees, were trying to do. They were trying to clean themselves up through law-keeping. They were taking the mirror and trying to clean themselves with it. It's absurd. It doesn't work. The mirror exists to tell you you need a shower. And the Bible exists to tell you you need a Savior. You need to get cleaned up. That's true. You need a savior. And in this final section of this passage where it says, Jesus says, don't think I'm going to be your accuser. But earlier he said, God has given me, granted me the power to judge. He is the judge. He's not the accuser, but he's the judge. He says, you would not come to me so that you could have life. You see, Jesus will either be your judge or your savior, and that's it. 
Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad that we're living in the days of decision? These are days when you can still make a decision for Jesus. He said, you could come to me and have life. You could. Will you? Or have you set your hopes on Moses? <laughs> have you set your hopes on the fact that you're a good person? And that in the end, I'll look at your resume of works and say, you pass muster. That's not a good hope. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a comprehensive statement. And the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23. But here's the great hope. It's not too late. You can today say to Jesus, I need a Savior. I'm a sinner. I bend the knee. I'm yours. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I don't know if there is anyone in this room or watching online who has not yet said to you, I need a Savior. But Father, if there is such a one, then Father, they can, as I'm praying these words, they can make it their prayer and they can pass from death into life today. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. I've broken your law. I am hopefully far off and I can never save myself. Father, I know that in Jesus is, there's life to be found. He's the Savior. Father, you have filled my mind with truths and maybe today in a new way I've apprehended their meaning. And I see the dangerous place I'm in. But God, you have graciously today opened my heart to see the truth of the gospel that I need a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus. Father, I don't know what blinded me before today to that wonderful truth. But I thank you, Lord, for opening the eyes of my heart to see it. And Father, I'm laying hold of it with both hands. I want to be yours. I want to belong to you. I want to have a sure and certain hope in Jesus. I bring you nothing, God, but my need. And you give me everything. What a wonderful thing. Father, I lay hold of this truth and I cling to it personally. I want to be yours. I want to live for you from this day on. Teach me how to be a follower of Jesus. I'm yours now. Father, we thank you for this time in your word today. Thank you, Lord, for the way you've spoken to us. Father, I pray, Lord, that as we go out from this place, you would help us to live as your people this week. In Jesus' name, amen.